You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thank you very much for being here. You know, I appreciate you taking the time to hang out and listen to this nerdery. I do appreciate it very, very much. This episode with my dude Scott Evans was very, very fun. We go into a lot of recording technique stuff, which is obviously very relevant to my interests at the moment, because that is all I'm doing with my spare time is making music and working on projects. So this was a really informative episode. He's a really smart dude, and he has worked on some amazing sounding records, and his band Kowloon Walled City is super, super cool. The new record sounds amazing, so definitely give that a spin. I just have one quick thing to plug. Well, two quick things to plug before we get into this episode. One is a lot of people have been asking for a Shred Shed walkthrough, and I've never done it, until now, you can go over to YouTube. I posted a walkthrough last week. So if you haven't seen it, there is a tour of the Shred Shed, and it's just called a tour of the Shred Shed. So if you type that in to the YouTube search, I'm sure it will pop right up. That's over on the Tone Mob YouTube page. I'm going to be a lot more active with that this year. So if you could hit me with a subscribe, that would be very, very beneficial. I would really appreciate it. I'm going to be trying a bunch of different content. I'm not going to go crazy with the 30 videos in 30 days thing again because that seemed to like have some bad, bad juju around it since everything caught on fire when I tried to do that. So not going to do that, but I will be much more active this year. I'm shooting for at least a video a week. I don't think that's too insane. So we're going to shoot for that. 
see what happens. Some of them will be vlogs. Some of them will be demos. People have actually responded to the vlogs a lot better than I anticipated. So I'll be doing my best to provide information and just value in any way that I can over there. So if you could slide over to YouTube, I would super appreciate that. And then the last thing is the same thing that I plugged last week, which is there is something special happening on February 9th. And patrons of this podcast, those in the text chat and the email list are going to know before anybody else. The patrons are going to know first because obviously they deserve some special treatment, followed by the text chat and email list. So those are free to join if you want to. You can go to ToneMob.com, hit the Join the Mob tab to join the newsletter, or you can text the number that's in the show notes of this podcast, which is seriously one of my favorite things that I've done uh, external to the podcast. It's so cool to get to talk to everybody and just jabber back and forth about gear, about music, about really just whatever. Sometimes it has absolutely nothing to do with anything, which is really, really cool, and there's no algorithm filtering it through or anything like that. So if you want to talk to me, boom, it comes right to me. And that's a great way to do that. So, okay. I won't bore you with anything else. Let's dive right into this episode with my dude, Scott. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Tone Mob podcast, the show about guitar stuff occasionally, sometimes. I'm your host, Blake Wylan, and with me today, I have Scott Evans from Kowloon, Walled City, and a bunch of recording projects, like too many to name, but here he is. Let's get into it. That's me. Hello. Yes, hi. How's it going? Dude, I am so excited to do this. I've actually been meaning to get you on for a while, and then a bunch of people in the Facebook group attached to this show were like, hey, you should get him on, because he just did your favorite band's record. I'm like, oh, yeah. And then... That was the impetus uh, to me messaging you, and here we are. Oh, you know? well, that, I appreciate it. Thanks for thinking of yeah, me. Yeah, dude. That's great. Uh, so maybe we dive into, this This is a, this could get really deep, but in the 30,000-foot view, we dive into your backstory for those who maybe aren't familiar. Like, when did you start playing, and when did you start recording, and oh, all that jazz? Oh, it's so uninteresting. Um, <clears throat> I am old. I've I'm 50, and I've been playing uh, since I was a kid, you know, since I was in high school. I played bass for a long time and sort of slowly transitioned to playing guitar. Mm -hmm. uh, and I got a little more serious about guitar when Kowloon got going. Um, but really, for a long time, I pretty much played guitar like a bass. Yeah. Uh, and still sort of do. I mean, I'm kind of a guitar player, but... You know, I get by. Me too. It's um, fine. Recording-wise, you know, not long after when I was in high school, when I started playing, I got a four-track, uh, and so did a couple of friends. And we all spent, like, you know, every waking hour. Just, it, like, the four-track thing grabbed me more than playing music, I think. It was just, like, you know, this... this uh, it's amazing. You know, you could do a few things and then like play it back and have a recording that, you know, like, like, oh my God, I can do this. It was, you know, overdubbing and mixing and all that. <clears throat> so um, one of my best friends from high school went off to recording school, mm -hmm. like a, a legit four-year program for recording. 
and I went and got a computer science degree and uh, basically spent the next, I don't know, a couple decades as a uh, software person doing a lot of recording, you know, as a serious hobby mm -hmm. or a very serious hobby or, you know, or weird obsession. And, uh, and playing in some bands, none really of note or anything. Uh, we moved to California about 15 years ago, and I guess it was more than that. It might have been 16 or 17 years ago. And at that point, uh, a couple years after that, I started playing in Kowloon and uh, started meeting more bands and more good bands than I had when I lived on the East Coast. Started doing more recording in practice spaces, you know, where I had a rig where I would take to people's practice space, record them there, mix it at home. Uh, that's how we did the first two Kowloon records, Turk Street and Gambling on the Richter Scale. And uh, I don't know, work just picked up. Um, and that's, I don't know, 15 years, 17 years later or whatever, that's where I'm at now. I, I don't program much anymore. I'm a day a week now. Mm -hmm. I tried to quit and kind of couldn't. Uh, <laughs> the, pe the people I worked with were like, please, please just stay a little bit. And I was like, okay, you know, I mean, it is much more financially stable than engineering. But I've been trying to make a go at full-time engineering for a couple years now, despite COVID. And uh, still the, the wraparound to talking about my buddy Greg, who I grew up with, he's been one of my muses forever. So he went off to do, you know, legit and, uh, you know, work at a bunch of big studios in New York. And basically I spent a lot of time like, like being pulled along in his wake. Okay. Uh, and that was really helpful for me because everything else I've done, I've had to learn myself about recording. Uh, and having a friend who has been learning from the best people in the world yeah. is invaluable. I mean, having any friends who are doing it is great. It just gives you someone to talk to and uh, sympathize with and send mixes to and all that. But... um having someone who's a pro and who's working with pros was really great. So sorry, that is, a, I, I said it wasn't interesting and then I talked for like five <laughs> minutes, but uh, that's kind of the it, the origin story. It's a podcast. It, it, it gets really uninter uninteresting when you stop talking. That's what I tell people. That's Oh, yeah, right, it, right. <laughs> you got to keep talking or it gets really weird. Sorry, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, uh, I can relate to that last part in a big way, especially right now. I'm learning, I'm dipping my toes in, in video production world like in a more serious way more more in a a creative like weird artsy way than like a youtube way but although i do plan on doing some youtube more youtube stuff um and my friend devon he's he's been doing this for a long time and i'm constantly like bothering him with the dumbest questions like what's this lens mount mean i don't know what any of this stuff is and i'm realizing like that world is as deep as the recording and gear world is i understand it so much better so having somebody oh, yeah. who knows it, video stuff is and so deep. editing and everything has has just helped so yeah, much. Yeah, I'm a photographer, so I understand you know still photography to some degree. Okay, I'm not you know not a mega pro or whatever, but I do all right. But video is like this whole. Even though I know photography and I know audio, mm -hmm. video is still like there is a lot to know. Yeah, it's it's a deep world, but it's really fun. It's I mean I feel like that's it. Like I've avoided getting into that stuff because I know it would be like. It's like just getting sucked down, you know, a well of of I, 
of excitement and exploring and learning, and I, I got no time in my life for Honestly, that. Honestly, it feels to me, it, it, this might sound kind of weird to the listeners, but it feels to me like the first time I plugged into a good tube amp. And I like strummed a chord. Yeah, and I was exactly. Like, no, I exactly know what you like mean. I've been doing this wrong. Oh, what? Oh, oh. Then there's this pedal, and then there's, and then I can run stereo, and then like you get into the whole, and now you, I have this whole room full of nonsense that I live in. Yeah, it's a trap. <laughs> so, and now the same things happening with video. I'm like, oh, this is gonna be expensive, <laughs> and and a never ending process of learning. Uh, but that's what's exciting about any creative stuff right it's there's it never ends you, there's always something to learn uh whether you're whether you've been doing it for 50 years or three years there's always something to learn with this stuff it truly never ends <laughs> yeah what was but yes i mean i definitely feel like uh i've been doing this for a hundred years and i am still learning regularly i still feel like i'm getting better and uh refining the tools that I have in my brain mm -hmm. to uh, to accomplish, you know, with my hands or my tools or whatever, what I want, what I'm hearing. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's still working on that. So I, I, I super wanted to get you on specifically to talk about recording in a partially selfish way because I, I have recorded a fair amount, um, but I'm still very much a novice. And... I do get people, especially in the text chat that's associated with this podcast, asking me about making content around how I record and how I do things. And I'm like, man, I barely know what I'm doing. Like, <laughs> like I, I'm same, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I just stick a mic in front of it and go, yep, that worked, or nope, that didn't work. Change it around, go in the DAW and like, I don't know, move this around over here, see what happens. Oh, that worked. Like, I really don't know what I'm doing, but, uh, I wondered if maybe talking to you, like what was something that you learned really early, whether it was a mic placement thing or a signal chain thing or anything that was just kind of this aha moment that became a go-to for you? I think I'm going to flip that around. Okay. One of the things that I learned later that I wish I had known earlier. So when I was younger, we would set up drums you know, say, and, and put mics on them, and then spend, and I'm sure people listening to this can relate, hours, you know, moving the snare mic an inch each oh, way. Yeah. And, uh, and, and maybe to some degree you have to do this to get to the point where you don't have to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. But these days when I do setups, you know, I'll put up, I don't know, you know, a dozen mics on drums and a bunch on guitars and whatever, and I will move or change two things after that. You know, it's just, I think, uh, it took a while for me to realize that, I mean, I mean, getting things right and knowing what, what changes will happen when you change them is important. Yeah. Um, but the two things, one, the time to learn about that is not during a recording session. <laughs> right. <laughs> when you're being paid. Uh, yeah. And, mm -hmm. Well, or when someone's waiting to be creative, you know, the time to do that is when you have experiment time at home. Like, yeah, put a snare, uh, put a 57 on a snare and move it 10 degrees and hit it over and over again and then go listen and see the differences and just like file that away. Mm -hmm. So I, the thing that I realized, I think, was eventually that to some degree, man, I wonder if I can synthesize this well. 
you gotta know, you gotta learn what is changeable and what isn't. Okay. And and where the problems are coming from. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're trying to get a snare drum to sound great by just moving around a 57 that's one inch from the snare drum head, in the end, you know, people talk about, oh, what's your favorite snare drum? Mike, I barely care at this point. Right. <laughs> like literally. Because so much of the drum sound comes from everything else. You know, it comes from the room mics and it comes from the overheads and it comes from the way the snare is tuned or the drum itself mm-hmm. or the way the drummer hits. And if they're consistent um, or the drum head choice or all these things. And, you know, I've sort of developed to a point where I'm using all these other mics to do a lot of the snare sound. And the the snare mic is, sorry to focus on snare drums, but uh, is just like giving me this pop, this transient. And any mic can do that. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's sort of like backing up a little bit and listening to things all together and and working from there. Like, what does this all sound like? Um, So I don't know if that was actually helpful at all regarding the question that you asked, but it is is something that's really important. And I think it's especially important today, um, more and more people, it seems like, record things one thing at a time. Yeah. For whatever reason. Uh, You know, I've worked with a bunch of bands that have never recorded playing together it's all you know like okay we're gonna uh track the drums then we're gonna get them all edited and then we'll do that you know maybe we'll do a scratch guitar while we're tracking the drums or maybe not uh we'll just the drum will just play to a click and then we'll uh do a bass take and then we'll get the bass perfect and then we'll go into guitars and maybe we'll take di's in case we want to reamp and uh that's not what you do at band practice. Yeah. You know, that's not what you do at a show. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, that to me is taking all the making music out of making music. And so uh, listening to things as a whole and seeing how they glue together and what needs to be fixed in that context is way, way better, I think, than listening to things, you know, with a microscope. I mean, occasionally you got to zoom in yeah. for sure. But uh, I just definitely, you know, if you got only eight mics and you're like, well, I want to use all eight on the drums, I really would encourage people to try instead using two of those for guitar and bass instead and recording everyone at once mm-hmm. and thinking that way. Just feel like it's, it changes everything. It's, a, you know, and it's the way I've always come up recording and still try to record everyone when I can. Yeah. yeah. And that includes, you know, technical bands, Yaucha. Super tech, right? Like crazy tech, live from the floor. Town Portal, you know, also intricate, weird music, live from the floor. Like, good bands can do it. I think I think that there's something... I've, I've done it both ways. Um, and I, I feel like there's something... I mean, it's not like I don't enjoy records that are recorded that way, you know, all chopped up and done individually. Of course I do. I'm sure way more than I even realize, but I do think there is something to be said about like hearing a band just be a band and doing what they do, you know, versus everything being so clinical and a hundred percent accurate with triggered drums and everything. I, I, like I said, I, I love music that's made that way too. I'm not saying it's good or bad to do, to go whichever way you're comfortable with, but I do think there's some spice when the band's all playing together, you know, that, that gets lost. Yeah, I mean, within reason, I'll take um, something that sounds a little bad, but doesn't need, you know, 
two days of editing or replacing or something over the option to replace it or reamp it or whatever. And I don't, you know, that may make my records sound a little less perfect than they should, but uh, fine. I don't know. You know, like, you'll five years from now, when you press play on that record, you'll know what it is right away, at least. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm okay with mm -hmm. that. So I, I have a specific question for you when it comes to recording guitars, which I'm sure will be of interest to a large portion of this audience. Uh, I've always found it's really easy for me to get clean or clean-ish guitar so sounds. Kind of, I can almost throw the mic just about anywhere, and it's going to sound pretty good within reason. Um, with dirt, I find it like really heavy guitars, which you've done a lot of. I find it takes me a lot more work to get that to sound the way it sounds to my ears in the room in a recorded mix. Um, and I, I haven't found a lot of consistency with like little tricks or anything. I'm constantly just having to like, I don't know, I'll play with it until I get it to sound right. And that's basically the only well, trick. Well, what's an example of something you're trying to do that you would normally, like, how would you start? Like, you're going to do some like chuggy, you know, heavy guitar. Like, how would you start recording that? Well, so the way I've done it lately is, uh, uh, I've done, I've done a lot of it in the box, which isn't my preferred way to do it. But if I'm going to do like really heavy, chuggy stuff, I'll usually start the way I do everything, which is get the sound I will I like out of the guitar. Like, okay, I got the pedals and amp and everything dialed in. I like how this sounds right in front of me. And then my go-to situation in order to get it sounding the way coming out of the monitors, the way I'm experiencing it myself, would be to, I got to use at least two mics. Um... What, what those are tend to not vary much. I, I really like the Aston Stealths on just about everything because they're pretty pretty flexible. Um, so I'll use two of those. One on I usually play a 212, so one on each speaker. And I kind of have to play with the placement a little bit. I'll make sure they're different. Like if one's right on the cone, I'll have one more you know, to the outside of the speaker. Sometimes play with the angles depending on what sound I got. And then I'll almost always turn actually this mic right here on and point it up and use it as a room mic because it's this because oh, this room sounds pretty good. I don't always use that room mic. Like I'm I'll so then I'll record the part, go back and listen to it and I almost always have to hard pan the two close mics uh, and then blend the room into taste and then most of the time I will move one of the close mics just like ever so slightly off and then it fills it out. Um, Interesting, but I don't. I, that's just something I stumbled upon. I don't even know if that's a good way yeah, to yeah. do it or not. It's just what I do. <laughs> well, uh, so I guess let me try and I can like without being there. Yeah. I, I like here's my thoughts on that. This is me personally, and everyone should record things the way they want to. Uh, I. Almost never, I'm trying to decide if I want to say never, mm -hmm. basically never uh, hard pan mics that are on the same guitar source. What I find, I always call that, it sounds like weird mono. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. You know, because it's the same performance, basically the same waveforms, just like a little different, and it's just going to mess with your ears and still sort of collapse to mono. Um, if you want width out of guitar, I think the ways to get it are either 
a close mic and a far mic, which you can pan, mm -hmm. or, you know, a set of close mics sum to one place in the stereo field, and then a, a distant mic pan, yeah. um, or doubling your guitars. It, you know, those are, I think, the choices. Like, I, you know, there are people who run, I've, I've recorded lots of people recording multiple amps, uh, and same thing, like, you know, hard panning those amps, like, you know, if you got a... a a two amp rig that is mono, it's not stereo, and you hard pan those, it's still just gonna be weird mono. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. I it's not uh it works live, but uh in recordings I don't find that that's effective. Um I also try generally to uh keep mics equidistant at least, you know, everyone knows this stuff, I think, by now from the speaker mm -hmm. if you're doing multiple miking just for phase yep. stuff. Uh, and yeah, sometimes I'll do like, oh, one at 45 or that kind of thing. Um, I'm more likely to pick two very different mics, mm -hmm. like a very bright mic and a very dark mic or, you know, the ribbon, the dynamic, all this normal stuff that people do. I And for heavy, heavy stuff, I basically almost never use a room mic. Um, mm -hmm. And I think what this comes back to is... Uh, it's a it's a noble goal to try and get guitars or drums sounding like you said like they sound in the room to mm -hmm. you but it's also like somewhat impossible and if you did it it probably is not going to be super satisfying coming out of speakers because it's just not what we are conditioned to want guitars or drums to sound like. Mm -hmm. When you stand in a room with a drum kit, you're, what you hear is, you know, like 20 feet from a drum kit, you hear a lot of cymbals. You hear, uh, you know, the kick drum doesn't sound very punchy. It sounds kind of like ill-defined and not very loud. And it's just, that is in fact not what most of us want a recorded drum kit to sound like for like loud rock music. Yeah. Um, which is why we put all these mics everywhere is to try and get, you know, more control over it. And similarly for guitar, uh, it's it's just really really hard to I think to to map the experience of being in front of a four twelve and a hundred watt amp to you know coming out of like a six inch speaker yeah uh, it's it, it, it's even harder because most of what we do is we mic up guitar amps very close which is not the way anyone listens to mm -hmm. them but with a multi you know if you got a two twelve or a four twelve and you pull a mic back you start getting weird phase stuff and so. Uh, long story short, for me, what I generally am trying to do is uh, I've spent my whole life listening to music very closely and sort of like calibrating my my radar as to what I think things sound. It's basically sort of like, what illusion are you trying to create? Mm -hmm. You know, like, okay, I want this to sound like it feels when I'm in the room with the guitars or with the drums. You know, like... I, I just want to put it on and be like that. Now that is a great guitar right. tone. Uh, so that to me, for instance, for heavy stuff, that means really not a lot of room stuff. Like, you know, old thrash records, that kind of thing had a lot of reverb on the guitars. And honestly, in hindsight, I don't like that at all. Right. Like I prefer when that stuff dried up. Uh, and, you know, I want like a, like a Meshuggah or a Megadeth Rust in Peace or a, a, I'm trying to think of other good examples of, you know, like these, remember when the first Lamb, few Lamb of God records came out, yeah. you know, they were like very dry. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
I love that. For more clean stuff or, you know, whatever I'll do, I'll generally do more of a room mic thing. Uh, anyway, I, the truth is, for almost all guitars, my approach is very similar, uh, heavy or not, um, which is, you know, one or two mics, uh, maybe three mics, and put them all on a mixing console um, so I can sit there with the faders and try blends. Okay. And you can do this in the box, too. Um, but, you know, sometimes it's the kind of thing where it's like, oh, you know, the this 201 or this 57 sounds great, but I just want a little bit of low end from it. And that's why I like consoles instead of a bunch of preamps is because doing, you see, like, I, people cannot see this, but you can. I'm, like, moving my hands like they're on faders. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, because it's just so quick to be like, let me try it with this one way up. Let me try it with this one way up. Here's three mics. Let me try a whole bunch of different blends of these three and see which one works the best. Mm -hmm. And, you know, usually I'll end up with uh, one main mic and a little push from the other one. Every once in a while, it'll be 50-50 two mics, almost never three mics. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, usually it's a ribbon and a dynamic or something like that. Sometimes uh, when we did that Town Portal record, almost all the guitar tone was a a weird um, high-end uh, DPA. Who was it before DPA? 4011. Uh, it's a really nice small diaphragm condenser. Like, mm -hmm. you know, a $3,000 small diaphragm. Sh should not have worked on guitar. Sounded incredible. Like, made every other mic sound broken. Wow. So that was most almost all we used. We, get, we found something else to blend in for a little bit of something. But uh, the point is, like, just always start pretty simple. You know, an inch or two back. Uh, with the mic pointed pretty much at the place where the dust cap meets the cone and go listen. Mm -hmm. And then you know what your moves are to make from there. It's like, oh, this is too bright. Move it out. This is too dark. Probably change settings on the amp uh, or change mics. You know, don't use a ribbon. And that's it. Like it's, you know, the ingredients are very simple. And uh, I, I don't want to say I'm arbitrary about the mics that I pick. But I feel like I can sort of make anything work. And it's always good to just start with stuff you know and keep it simple and then start trying to make changes to get it where you want. If you do that enough, I think it, be, it, it starts to become pretty obvious, like, okay, this is working mm -hmm. or this isn't. And a lot of it is just having a tone that translates well, you know, out of the amp. Right. So if someone's got a great bedroom tone, you know, super scoopy and like tons of low end and real woofy, over time you get to realize like you just hear it come out of the amp and you go, that that ain't gonna work, right? Like, like I get that that sounds cool, but it's it's not gonna sound the same coming out of the speakers at the end of the day. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. But, um, the other thing I think that is important to come back to what I said before is, uh, is record with that guitar tone. You know, whatever it is, don't play a DI and change it later. Like we play differently. You know, if I replaced your Les Paul with a Strat, you would play it differently. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I think whenever possible, yeah, just, just do. get a sound, put that sound back into your headphones and play. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, it's, it's interesting. So do you, and then with guitars, do you usually, when you're mixing, do you, you usually leave them centered? Like you don't, you said you didn't really pan them much. Well, most of the, honestly, most of the like loud rock stuff I do, there's two guitars. Yeah. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. So, and if, if it's a three-piece band um, with one guitar player, we will usually double the guitars. Mm, okay. Um, 
I don't usually do like quads. You know, a lot of people like to dub double the doubled guitars. Mm -hmm. And to me, that uh, sort of smooth things out a lot. And I'm just not into that. I want to hear all like the grit and texture and the interesting stuff. Uh, so I think this is one of these things where people think that by adding more, it will make it bigger. And for me, it's the opposite. It's more like by taking away, it gets bigger. Yeah. Um, so when you can remove gain, when you can remove overdubbed guitars, like the, the less that's in there, like the fewer ingredients, the more you will taste the ingredients right. in the recipe. Right, right. And, th and that's what I really want. Um, if I'm doing a band, and I've done a few of these, where the guitar player, it's a three-piece, say, and the guitar player is like, I do not want to double my, my parts. Usually what I'll do is I'll put another mic 10 feet away, 12 feet away, something like that, uh, like an Omni, uh, you know, something that will pick up the room and some character, and I'll pan those, you know, maybe like 60% left and mm -hmm. right. Uh, and then maybe sometimes at mix time play a little bit with adding a little bit of delay to the room mic. You can kind of hear it when you do that. Like you just add a few milliseconds and eventually if you're sitting there listening, you'll like hear them go from being one sound to two sounds. Right. Uh, and it's that like that point where it doesn't sound like a like a slap delay. It doesn't sound like a flam, but it does separate the sounds. That's where it's like, okay, now we've got some width and separation out of one guitar. Yeah, I feel like that's that's probably when I'm doing the double mic thing. That probably has m more of an impact because I'm not necessarily putting a delay on it, but I am kind of effectively doing that with the two tracks because I'll zoom way in and I'll move it like a millisecond, you know, which isn't putting a delay on it per se, but when it's the same. No, and a millisecond yeah. probably is not enough. Yeah. Usually I think to get them to really separate, uh, a millisecond is enough for it to get sort of phasy and weird, I think. Yeah, it's uh, I might be off get, of my time there. To, I can't I remember exactly what yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, but it's usually more like 15 or 18 or 20 mil. It's a, it's a bunch, mm -hmm. like, uh, to get them to to not be phasing with each other anymore and, and to really kind of like detach. Yeah. I, I know that sound you're talking about, though, for sure. Like, I've heard that moment. It's like, oh, there it is. And I think that's probably more of what I'm hearing when I'm doing what I'm doing versus the actual, like, hard pan thing. It's probably more from that separation than the panning. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that makes sense. And like I said, I wasn't, I wasn't trying. I'm not. I hope it doesn't sound like I'm trying to pick apart your approach because I really strongly believe that... Uh, Recording should be individual and not groupthink. And there, yes, there are there are best practices that we learn through mistakes. Um, and I I have a enormous list of those. Mm -hmm. um, but I, what I was really more doing was just sort of responding, like, "Oh, here's my version of well, that." Well, that's uh, well, that's what I was asking you to do. So that's fine. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Just want to make it, just want to be clear that I am not trying to, you know, well, be critical because in, ad admittedly, I haven't probably. I, not probably. I haven't done as much like research on it as I should for the amount that I do record. I really just am like running gun. I don't know, shove it in there and see what happens. And you know, like really just trying things. And but that's always. I think that's awesome. Yeah. I, I I mean, I, I all I would say is that try and find time when you're not trying to get something done, and just have experiment days. Oh well, you know? I need to stop doing that. Actually, I've had lots of experiment days and not enough get stuff done days. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, sorry. <laughs> so, most of my life has been an experiment. Uh, it's it was really only until it, I I played with a band for several years, 
Um, and then you know, everybody started having kids and everything, and that kind of just kind of fell by the wayside a little bit. Um, but it wasn't until 2021 when I really started taking recording my my solo stuff seriously. And that's why it's been such an interesting dive for me to try to get better at this because I'm... Oh, it's a trap, <laughs> dude. Yeah, it's... <laughs> it's it's uh, one thing I have learned, though, and I think that the audience can can take take away from this. I'm really bad about buying and using boring gear. Like, it took me forever when I first started getting into pedals. I went like a year without buying a tuner because I was like, I can buy another fuzz. Why would I want to buy a tuner pedal? I can just use this stupid little... Wow, know, of all the examples, yeah. I mean... You know, like, I can just... I'm bad at buying boring gear. Like this boom arm here that I have, it's been so nice. I just use the stupid like amp, you know, one you would use to mic an amp with. I just had that yeah, sat yeah. on my desk for years because I didn't want to buy, I just have a hard time buying boring, quote unquote, boring stuff. But when I do, it changes the whole workflow and makes your life so much easier. So don't be like me. I love all that. <laughs> like, I mean, I get it. Like, you know, buying oh, I've got to buy 20 mic cables and it's 400 bucks and that sucks. Yeah. Like nothing has changed here. But uh, it is always gratifying to be like, I know all my mic cables are right. <laughs> you know, like, or I know my mic stands aren't going to collapse. Like I finally, I don't know, five or eight years ago, uh, decided a, on a kind of mic stand that I liked, bought a handful of them, like six or eight of them, which did not amount to that much money in the end and took all my like, you know, on stage and whatever other brand mm -hmm. of, you know, guitar center type. And I just put them all out in the practice space next door for free. Yep. And it was like the best day of my life. <laughs> the boringest purchase. But I mean, literally, like from then on, I have been able to trust every single mic stand I grab. And it's just great. What kind of mic stand do you like? Oh, now we're talking. Yeah. Um, the most of what I use. So I, my personal opinion is that every recording studio Greatly overinvests in tall mic stands, you know, the tall tripod <laughs> yeah. ones, like, which are always, or they buy the shorty ones, and basically, like, neither of those are good for drums. Mm -hmm. Like, for drums, you want medium mic stands. And even for, and for guitars, you never want tall mic stands, right. right? So, like, the only thing you need a tall mic stand for is, like, a vocalist. And those things are garbage for overheads because they're not sturdy yep. enough. So, uh, most of what I have, I'm looking over in the other room right now to see them, are uh, Atlas round bases mm -hmm. and uh, a short, like a shorter medium, I think Atlas, um, what's that? I don't know, the post that comes up from it. Yeah. Uh, and then a DNR, um, boom. Nice. And, the you know, I can mic floor toms with those. I can mic rack toms with those. They're great for guitars. I have a couple very short ones for kick drums. Uh, that is most of what I have. And then the thing I'm talking to you in is like one of these big Atlas, uh, like cast iron triangle base yeah. mics mm -hmm. stands with an Atlas boom on it. Um, and these are really good for vocals, uh, or for like short overheads. Yeah. Um, they're not super expensive and they're very well built and they're somewhat modular so that you can replace parts on them. Um, and then for very tall ones for doing like overheads or room mics or whatever, um, there is Sharkbite by accident bought a couple of these uh, Ultimate. I can't remember which model it is. Uh, like tall with like the like a weird triangle base and like sort of rollerblade looking wheels mm -hmm. on it. 
Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. They're great. They're extremely good. Um, they're just really flexible and built well, and they hold up well. And, like, I would not expect that um, something called Ultimate would be Ultimate. But, in fact, it's really quite good. Nice. Um, that's the end of my microphone stand tech. Talk, I, li- I, I like that. I, I was Now I'm, I'm starting to, like, my brain is going into, like, what are the best boring gear purchases that I've made recently? I mentioned the Oh my god. I was like I mentioned the Gator boom arm. I love that. Um uh oh, you know what? Like this sounds really extra silly, but for so long I was editing on this 13-inch Mac like MacBook Air, uh one of the newer ones, but it, I'm I I again, I'm so I'm so dumb. I let me back up a little bit. My main computer that I ran for years and years and years to do this podcast and all my recording on was one of those cheese grater Mac Pro towers from 2009. Yeah, that's what I'm recording myself on right now, talking to you. Great machine. Love that thing. But I started getting to a point where some of the software I wanted to use just wasn't compatible anymore. And so... I, I was like, well, let's get an Air. Everyone's raving about these M1s. Let's get one of those things. That's Yeah, yeah. And so I still have the, the MacBook Pro, and I will be integrating it into everything. Or the Mac Pro, excuse me. Um, it's still, honestly, this is a little bit of a tangent, but that thing still works fen- phenomenally well. I upgraded it to an SSD and put some yep. extra terabytes. They are awesome computers. They are. They work great. And it's, They're it's great. 11 years old now, or almost 12. Like, it's insane. Anyway, but I was just like, I had that hooked up to a 720p like Vizio TV for my monitor, but it was big. It was like 32 inches. And so when I switched to this MacBook Air, it took me forever. And finally, I realized I was squinting at everything. I'm like, this can't be good long term. If you're going to be like doing this stuff at a professional level, maybe like don't be dumb and be a professional. So this monitor I have now, this BenQ monitor, it's been like life changing for me. Oh, I have a BenQ monitor. It's so good. It's it's so good. It's so good. It so boring. <laughs> so boring. But it's life changing when you're staring at it all day. You know, it's yeah. I mean, I I am definitely really weird and finicky about this stuff. And what but what I like to do if I can is get stuff to a point where it's like simple and done, and I don't have to think about it, and it doesn't mess with my head, and I can then I can focus on doing the stuff that I'm supposed to be yes. doing. So, you know, if you're spending a lot of time like, oh, I'm on this tiny screen and I can never get two plugins on the same, Mm -hmm. you know, or like things like that that are like, I just don't want, like within reason, I don't ever want to be doing this, you know, like I don't ever want to be crawling around behind my rack trying to, you know, change the way something is patched up. So I have patch bays, you know, and that is, patch bays are a really boring purchase, but they're, they're a game changer once you get used to them. That's my one of my big things this year will be running cables up and over, like you can see well, the audience can't see this, but you see like everything's done uh, with the surface mount out here. So if yeah. the redneck part of me wants to just like zip tie cables to it and run it over and like so I can have boxes, but I'm going to do it right. I'm trying to be better about like doing things the right way. Uh, and I'm going to have my electrician buddy come over. We're going to run some new conduit to everywhere that I've like learned that I like to have mics and have a patch bay set up like you're talking about. So I, cause I'm yep, constantly I, tripping I over cables be, like all the time. And I was just like, oh, yep. this is so dumb. 
The the other cheap way you can do that if you want is you could just buy a short snake, mm-hmm. you know, like a stage box. Yes. You know, so so then you've got, you know, you don't have to have a million cables. You have one cable with, with eight XLR inputs or whatever that you can take anywhere in the room. I, and I think I, I've thought about doing that uh, as a stopgap, but I think, like, I know. I mean, what you're talking about sounds way better. I think, like, I'm, you know, I, I think I, I've I've considered doing just that, but I know I know myself well enough. Just like it took me a year to buy a tuner pedal, that if I do that, I'll never do the one I really want. And so, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> it, 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 there is always that push yeah. and pull. So I'm trying to like just like just do the thing that you want to do in the first place. You know, I mean, this actually the shred shed was kind of a good example. Like I could have done it a lot smaller, and like a lot cheaper but i knew it was like are you, is that what you really want to do shouldn't you just you know bite the bullet and do the thing that you really want to do instead of like adding on later and with what happened to lumber costs here recently i'm really glad i did it all yeah really <laughs> i'm yeah. really really glad i did it all at the same time so it was a lot to bite off yeah i mean i think the the, the trick is to find the the uh it's always good i think to to try and find the right cutoff point where you're not obsessing over your workspace or your system, you know, so much that it's keeping you from actually doing work. And I do know people like that, like, oh, they're just tuning their to-do list system a little more, you know, and it's like, that's not really what it's about. It's all in in service of actually doing stuff. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, just always, I always try and think about what it is you're actually trying to get done and how you can serve that right with you know with tweaks mm-hmm. yeah th- instead of making the the absolute perfect you know whatever because odds are it probably won't be even if you do like spend hours obsessing over it you'll you'll get done with it and be like but i can do this other thing too mm, well yeah. six months later you probably will want some change and so you do need to keep some degree of sort of like flexibility and looseness into whatever you do you know like you just no, you know, I when I see people do like uh, really involved installations or you know that kind of thing where it's like this is very permanently here. It's just like man, in five years you you just know that's going to look abandoned. Yep. Because whatever you know, you you uh, you made an exact you know you built an exact thing to hold this TV, but five years from now, like those TVs won't exist anymore mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's a million examples of this. So so finding things that are, uh, I don't know, aesthetically okay and work well, but are not painting you into a corner right. in sort of all ways in life, I think is, uh, is a good way to walk through life. <laughs> I agree. I agree. And, you know, and there's something to be said for the, like the, ready, fire, aim approach too. you know, like just get in there and do it. You know, like I said, I don't really know what I'm doing most of the time. So I just have to just do it and see what happens. And, you know, if it sucks, then we'll do it differently the next time. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm very, in my life, I'm very ready, aim, 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 fire. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's great in some ways. And you know, really a limitation in some ways. And I think is the reason that it's a, a, a number of things like that I'm doing right now, other people would be doing in their life when they're 28. Right. <laughs> you know, it's just like, because other people are more aggressive about deciding to move in a direction. Yeah. 
So I think there is a fine line between the two. And, you know, yeah, in the end, what you want to do is get stuff done and not make stupid decisions that you can't undo. Yeah, this is a slight, slight tangent to that. But one of the things, uh, you know, I'm business partners with Scott over at Stringjoy. Um, and one of the things we've talked about with other uh other business folks and just other people in general is one of the great things about having a partner like that, that we can, that we, you know, we really trust each other and work well together is that decisions get made. And, mm. you know, cause we'll, you know, we'll, I talk to him almost every single day and there's always something that we have to decide and it could be a big thing or a little thing. But if either of us were left to our own devices, we might agonize over it for weeks. Whereas we can hop on the phone and hash it out between the two of us and decide in a half hour what what the course of action is, you know? And, and then you and you then do it. you're that's it. That's yep. it. That's the course. That, and you know, now make that work. Mm-hmm. And I feel like recording, to bring it back to something about music, mm-hmm. is best served with that kind of mentality. Uh when I interviewed Matt Bayless years ago for tape op, I remember he said recording is about making decisions. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was awesome. It's really stuck with me. So now, you know, anytime when when we do another take, so, oh, let's do another take just to have it. It's like, what does that mean? Right. <laughs> like, what does that mean just to have it? Like, what are we going to do with right. it? Like, <laughs> like, you just played it great. Why do, like, what are we doing here? You know, like, all we're doing is, is recording you guys playing a song and you just did it and it was good. Like, we don't need, what, you're hoping that lightning is going to hit you during this take, you know? <laughs> and there's lots of examples of that. I think, like, you know, oh, let's take a DI in case we want to redo the guitar tones later. Like, well, let's not. You know, let's let's make that decision, and then we will make all these other little decisions based on that one being fixed. Mm-hmm. And that's how you get something at the end that glues together. Um, recording is about making decisions. And, and when you do make decisions, you can then proceed down the path that you have, you know, put a few bricks in front of you to start walking. Yeah. And that's really important to get anything done. I love. There's just no perfect. It that's you know anything. That's so good. That's that's such an important thing, and you know it's not just important for everybody listening to hear. It's important for me to hear too. Like it's important to remind myself because, you know, especially us gear nerds, we can get so wrapped up into a uh, paralysis by analysis situation where you just like you said we were talking about organization, but even just like. Oh, I'll do that once I get this microphone or I'll do that once I get this pedal. Sometimes you do need to wait for those things. Most of the time you don't. Most of the time you can probably just do it another way. Oh, 100%. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. once in a while there's a utility function that's like, okay, I really can't do that without that. But it's rare. You can usually find a way yeah. around. Uh, that's good. Making decisions. Recording is making decisions. It 100% is. A hundred percent. I never thought of it that way. Absolutely. Wow. That's fantastic. Recording is, it's about commitment. It's about committing. Like that might've been what he said. Recording is about committing. Uh, But it is, you know, if you commit and the more you commit, the more you realize like what you want to commit and what you don't, like you will make mistakes, Mm -hmm. but uh, they will make you stronger. That's right. Well, you know what? Now to unpack this thought a little bit further, that's, that was more prevalent back in the day. When everyone was recording to tape, you were making that you weren't doing a bunch of stuff in post. You could only do so much. Oh, you yeah. Know? Like you were just like, okay, that's what we're gonna do because that's what we have. That's what we're doing. Now oh, yeah. you're oh, oh <laughs> increasingly so as you go further back in time. You know, you get to the sixties or the fifties, and it's really that way. But uh, my favorite 
uh, somewhat modern example of that is, um, you know, that, uh, what's it called? Um, Unstoppable Recording Machine, those guys? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, they did a thing a while ago where they got their hands on the multi-track to Destroy, Erase, Improve by Meshuggah. Okay. Which was recorded to tape by a dude, I guess, who was like 19 at the time. And he basically like, you know, they had the multi-tracks in Pro Tools or whatever. And he put all the faders at zero and did the panning and pressed play. And it sounded like Destroy, Erase, Improve. You know, it's just like, nice. <laughs> oh my God. What? You know, this dude just tracked it this way. Mm -hmm. One of the best sounding and best metal records ever made. And, you know, it was like done. It was crazy. Uh, That's intense. I don't, it's intense. <laughs> it's really humbling. Uh, I don't remotely work that way. I do more work at mixed time than I'd like to. But I at least aspire to it. I think, you know, it's... Uh, it's good to know that that's where recording came from and know, you know, <clears throat> that remember that you're making music. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, this, you know, if you're trying to make, you know, beats or you're trying to make really complicated electronic music or like, that's a different world and that's all fine and great. I'm just talking about, you know, dumb rock bands like the one I'm in. <laughs> Your band's good. Don't, 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 uh, don't try to say that. Especially this latest the, record. Dude, this is great. This, this new one that you guys did. Whew, that was good, oh, man. That <laughs> was thank you. I was blasting it here yesterday because I, I was like, oh, I haven't actually got to that one yet. Dumb. I, I might be one of your best. I love that record. I, I I'm gonna be playing that the rest of the week. Uh, what was the what was the process on that one like? Um. So thank you, by the way, and mm -hmm. uh, I think I can actually say. Uh, I can't always say this, but I think I can say that we're all happy with it, which is an accomplishment unto itself. Yeah, no kidding. Um, the process was almost the same as our last couple of records, um, and definitely all of our you know splits and all that. Uh, I do a lot of recording at the studio, Shark Bite, which is just down the hall from the room I'm in now. Mm -hmm. um, they have a really great sounding live room. And an old Trident console that uh, sounds good when it's working. <laughs> and, um, you know, we, the process roughly is we set everyone up. Uh, there are three ISO booths connected to the live room. So, you know, bass and guitar amps in those. Everyone has headphones. Uh, and we play the songs a few times each. Nice. And uh, when we get a good take, we listen back and see if there's any mistakes. And we fix those. And then we do another one. And uh, that's about it. You know, then after that, there's we did, this has also become normal. We'll have like a day or two, like overdub days. Um, you you probably, you know, there are some like leady things that John plays. So we need to do those because we don't typically take those live. Right. Um, and then we'll do some layering. Um, it's really subtle. We'll do like a like a sort of, sparkly clean version of some arpeggios and things like that just to sit under the main guitar and have it uh maybe help it be a little more articulate mm -hmm. um just to bring out a little sparkle or whatever but hopefully it, it you don't notice it um so we some of that and uh then 
we did the atypical thing of letting the records sit there on a hard drive for three or four years or whatever it was. Oh, really? While while our singer, who is me, uh, suffered from crippling writer's block and just couldn't get vocals done. Uh, yeah, so without getting into it too much, unlike all our previous records, we basically entered the studio, uh, we entered the recording process with no uh, lyrics or vocals written. That's never happened before. Mm -hmm. But I think we, we were all like, well, you know, this guy needs a push. Let's just do this. And uh, my brain was kind of broken, and it took a while. But eventually the process amounted to me uh, doing vocals here in this room I'm standing in uh, by myself over and over again. So sort of, you know, uh, writing... Or, or refining by hearing myself back. Yeah. You know, which you, usually you would do in a practice space. Um, but I just didn't have that. So I was, you know, recording them over and over again. Um, and then, uh, you know, a few days of mixing and that's that. Nice. That's, that is, uh, I don't know if I've ever heard of that one before. I've definitely heard of people coming in the studio with no vocals and, and doing it there. But that big break, that's, that is an interesting thing. Do you think that, do you think that that was ultimately beneficial doing it that way? No. No. <laughs> okay. No. Wouldn't choose it it, wouldn't choose to do that again. All right. Hell no. <laughs> it was terrible. Uh I mean, the good part is I don't think that it was detrimental. I think the record still like we we are we know ourselves well enough and we know our songwriting well enough that we are able to pretty much be like this is where the vocals go. Right. You know, like that was that was always in my head. I just didn't know what the vocals were. Um, so we're able to write that way. Um, and the record to me still feels 100% like it was written that way. And that's really important. Um, there are maybe, you know, maybe sometimes um, we'd be more likely to, oh, let's drop a beat from here or let's make this shorter or longer or whatever. You know, if we're doing the vocals in the more traditional way. But... Uh, regardless of it coming out okay, the process still sucked. Yeah, I felt terrible the whole time. Like you know, it just it was just sitting on me. And uh, no, I wouldn't recommend it. Okay, good. Not recommended. All right. Well, we are getting close to the end of the podcast, um, and traditionally, I, I close out with a couple classic questions. But before I do that, I like to give the guests the opportunity to. You know, plug anything they want to plug, shout out anybody they want to shout out, say whatever you want to say to a few thousand people. Like now is now's the time. Oh man, I don't have anything to say. Um let's see. Dude, I, I'm not I don't have anything to sell. I got nothing to say. <laughs> I'm trying to think of something interesting. Like I I've been all I've been doing is like trying to stay covid free and mixing and stuff i have not really been operating in the world much i'm trying to think of like a a record i discovered here let me look over here and see if there's a something i can say i'm not doing well here <laughs> i can say for you that everyone does need to check out the latest record and it is available pretty much everywhere you can stream things i'm assuming that's true. It is definitely not available on vinyl yet, which is not great. I um, understand. Yeah, I understand that struggle. Woo! But yeah, who doesn't? Uh, hopefully this month we'll see. We had a test pressing issue that we had to uh, address, and we did address it. And 
Hey, uh, okay. I don't know. I got nothing. Go listen to the the gospel record from two thousand four or whatever. That's my that's my <laughs> advice to everyone here. Uh, what's it called? Uh, the moon is a dead world or something like that. I'm not sure. I, I'm not I, familiar with it. Well, so everyone I know is like, oh, you didn't know this band? Uh, they're amazing. And uh, no. I missed them until this year. Yeah, The Moon is a Dead World, 2005. Uh, just weird metal. Totally great. Love it. That sounds like right up my alley. I will definitely check that, that out. There we go. There, that's all I got. That's perfect. Listen to that and listen, listen to the new low record, which I think everyone is already doing, but listen to the new low record. Yeah, that's good too. Okay, those are good plugs. I'll take those plugs. All right, classic questions before we go here. First one, what is your favorite boss pedal? Ooh. Uh, it's probably a TU2. Oh, there you go. Honestly. That's that's a, a pretty, pretty common answer, actually. The TU2. Yeah. Great pedal. And shout out to Boss for really, like, incredible enclosures, incredible durability, you know, like... Here we go. Blues driver. Yep. I have one sitting right here for no reason. <laughs> yep. I used a blues driver a lot. A modded blues driver a lot back in the day. Also a good pedal. Uh... The I have all the classics, mm -hmm. uh, and I just can't get with any of them. It's so funny. Like, you know, I'll try and chase, like, oh, one of the ones that I remember was, like, oh, Alex Newport, when he was in Fudge Tunnel, his guitar tone was, like, a super overdrive into a JCM 800 or something like that. Right. And I was, like, that is the meanest guitar tone I've ever heard. I want it. So, you know, I got that pedal and tried into a Marshall. I was, like, I hate this. <laughs> uh, like all of those pedals, they 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 warp your tone so much. I think what I've realized is that me personally, I just like things that people would consider transparent. Okay. And really, no boss pedal is. No, not um, really. They all do their own thing. Also, speaking of boring utilities, what's the one that's um? Is it the line splitter? Oh yeah, yeah. The line splitter's cool. That is. Yep, I've been using that a useful. lot while building pedals. I do a lot. I've been doing a lot of pedal building, and that one's just been great on the bench, to you know send one guitar signal into two different pedals, but only that pedal. And and I just want to hear that. You know, it's like a very simple, uh, like splitter kind of thing. And on the bench, that's been super handy and useful. Perfect. Perfect. Shout out, boss, for the utility. Thank you, boss. The most boring two pedals ever made. <laughs> I, actually, I'll also here's a weird one that I'll I'll throw out for boss too, which is the TU3S. Then so that's the newer one, right? No, it, whatever it's called, it's the one that has no pedal. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you're talking about. Where it's just you, it's just you like just plug it's it just in. like the top half of a TU3. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th that well, I'm, I'm sliding. <laughs> that's what's on my pedal board. Uh, so I can go into that. And always have it on. And I love that because, like, if, if if I feel that during a show I'm slipping, my tuning is slipping, I can just, like, hold a single note, glance at it, like, retune mid-set or mid-song, and fewer tuning breaks between songs, which is great. Gotcha. Do you find that you miss the mute function that the... the I have a mute switch after. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. So, no, you don't. <laughs> yeah. Easy enough. All right, cool. Last question. This is the one that gets a little bit dicey, gets a little hairy. What is your favorite kind of pizza? When you say kind, what do you mean? 
Uh, well, if there's a specific pizzeria, that's cool. Or if there's a regional style that you like, or if there's a, you know, particular combination of toppings or any, any and all varieties, you know, are, are up for discussion. Uh, I grew up in New York. And so I grew up thinking that it was my birthright to be an about pizza. <laughs> and as I've gotten older, I've realized that basically most pizzas are wonderful and, uh, I'm a happier person for it. <laughs> I uh, I definitely still romanticize uh, Two Boots Pizza in Greenwich Village in New York. Uh, it was always one of the most amazing slices of pizza I could get. Uh, there were a bunch of places near where I grew up in Long Island that always had amazing pizza. And when I visit my mom, we still get pizza from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am a mushroom and onion person. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I can get on board with uh, that. I don't eat meat, so I don't do uh, any meat pizzas. Um, but I'll also do, and I think this is part of growing up in New York, I am perfectly happy with a cheese pizza. That was a, you know, a regular dietary staple. Like here in the Bay Area, a burrito is a dietary staple. Right. Uh, but in New York and on Long Island, there are pizza places everywhere where you walk in and say, give me two slices. And they hand you two cheese, you know, they heat up two cheese slices and they, you walk out with them. Totally. And that's just dietary staple. So I'm perfectly happy, and I don't feel like it's basic at all to do cheese pizza. I uh, I didn't really understand, and I've said this so many times, the listeners get tired of it probably, but I didn't really understand the whole New York pizza thing, being, you know, West Coast guy, um, until I went there. I mean, I'd look at pictures of it and be like, it looks like pizza. I don't understand, like, what... Looks pretty boring. It looks like pizza, but... After I went there and sampled a bunch of pizza places, I was like, nope, I, I get it. I was p- fully prepared to call shenanigans on all of it. I was I was going in a hater, and then I came out a lover. Like I was like, oh, yep. oh, I do love this pizza. I think about it all the time. And fortunately, this is a very controversial opinion, uh, Portland is really stepping their pizza game up. And most of them— Yeah, I feel like West Coast pizza has greatly improved uh, since even since I've lived here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've I'd actually had some friends from the East Coast come over, and I've taken them to some pizza places. I'm like, and they're like, "This is actually really good." I'm like, "I told you, yeah, I told you, yeah." It's not as common. And also, though. it's not really allowing yourself to uh, let other types of pizza <laughs> into your life is a, like I said, is a, it's a happier way to be. So you know, like my mom is still like, "Oh, deep dish pizza? You mean like a?" I don't remember what a she casserole. said. Some derisive thing yeah. about it. It's always funny. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, the casserole mm-hmm. thing. Uh, I'm like, you're crazy. This is delicious. Like, I'll I will eat deep dish pizza that's good all day, 100. percent Or Detroit style pizza. Oh, yeah. Yes, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, I definitely have opened up. I still am that person that's like deep, the deep dish pizza. Now I haven't been to Chicago and had it proper yet, but I've had that style. To me, I'm still like this is like it's not really what I think of when I think of pizza. It's it's kind of its own thing. Um, but I love it. It's really good. Yeah, but it's fantastic. It's, yeah, it's like, delicious. It's, How could you say it's not good? Yeah. It's of course it's delicious. Like it's fantastic. It's kind of like a calzone. Yeah. The Chicago pizza. people I know are like, yeah, we don't actually really like deep dish here. I've been told that a few that, times. Yes, that's a that's a tourist thing. Um, the couple times I've been in Chicago, uh, only once I think did we do some legendary deep dish, and the rest of the time the pizzas we got were just regular. Mm-hmm. Thin crust, like thin crust. And they were quite good. Yeah. Yep. Now I'm hungry. Mm, pizza. Yeah. Same. 
Yeah, I have some leftovers in the fridge. I'm going to go get some here in a little bit. I'm, I may go find myself good. some pizza. Well, then. dude, thank you so much for coming on. This was this was awesome. Yeah, my pleasure. Happy to be here, and thanks for having me. Of course. All right, well, I think we can wrap this section up. We can do a little chit-chat on, uh, on Patreon if you're cool with that. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if I'm being interesting or not, so tell me if I need to be more interesting. Oh, uh, I'd have hung up. I would have hung up by now if it wasn't interesting. So don't worry <laughs> about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. For Scott, this is Blake. And as always, folks, good luck and good tones. Okay, there you have it. There it is. It's in the can. It's done. But is it? No, because there is more over on Patreon. So if you need more content and you want to get just real weird, Slide over to Patreon, and for five bucks a month, you can get extra episodes beamed directly to your ears every single week. There is so much bonus content over there. You can also get those extra episodes if you subscribe on Apple Podcasts. They have a subscription feature now, and it is the same price, and it is the same content. So if that is your preference, that is available to you as well. Thank you so much for hanging out. I appreciate it. Don't forget about February 9th. There's something big coming. I'm so excited to share that with you. Oh, I wish I could. I wish I could spill the beans, but I can't. I can't. Grant and Karen would be so disappointed. Grant and Karen being from Big Ear Pedals. Oh, maybe that's a hint. Maybe that is sort of a hint. But that's all I'm going to say because this is going to be ridiculous. Okay. You know what? Let's wrap this up. I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. One last thing before we totally sign off here. I just want to remind you that if you do any shopping at Stringjoy, that's Stringjoy Guitar Strings made in Nashville, that will help me out as well. As I've said for years, I'm heavily involved in that company, and I really do think they're making the best products on the market. So if you would like to try custom strings, go to ToneMob.com Stringjoy and check them out today. I seriously, seriously, seriously love what the team down there is doing. I help them out with all kinds of things, and by you supporting them, you are also supporting me as well. And hey, you need some strings, so why not get some custom strings just for your guitar and playing style? Again, the link for that is ToneMob.com Stringjoy, and that will take you right to their website, and you can do all your shopping through there, and that will help everyone involved out. So thank you very much. Talk to you next time. We are brought to you by the wonderful folks at Gun Street Wiring Shop. Yes, Gun Street Wiring Shop. I've talked about them before. I used to say based out of Bend, Oregon, but guess what? Sean moved to my neck of the woods. Sean's in Portland. Sean is awesome and has helped me with a bunch of stuff lately. And if you have wiring needs for your guitar, he can help you too. If you want to get weird with it, he can get weird. If you just need to spruce things up a little bit, there's your guy. He takes all the guesswork out of doing your guitar wiring, and he makes it simple and his customer service is top-notch, and I can't say enough good things about Gunstreet as a company. I really respect Sean and what he's all about, and the product is top-notch. I've got three different guitars that now have Gunstreet harnesses in them, and I could not be happier. So go to GunstreetWiringShop.com and check them out.